Well, when we consider the doctrine of God's grace, it's important to begin with consideration of two corrosive movements that certainly stand opposed to this rich doctrine. One of them is the attitude of entitlement. And certainly in our day, in our culture, in this generation, we see the attitude of entitlement running rampant, responsible for destruction, for all forms of violence, this idea that I am entitled to the riches that someone else has. And certainly within a geopolitical level, that kind of entitlement is responsible for some of the most despicable evils and atrocities ever committed. Think of communism and its destruction of the millions and millions of lives, even this past century, the 20th century. That's the idea of entitlement. I deserve. On the other hand, another corrosive attitude is the attitude of self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. I can do it my own way. I can make myself worthy. And certainly when we think of that corrosive attitude, we see it on display in the world's religions. That although there is a recognition that there is something fundamentally wrong with man, this attitude of self-sufficiency or self-ability runs all through those religions and teaches that man in some way can make himself worthy. Well, both entitlement and self-sufficiency stand in antithesis to the doctrine that we are considering this evening, and it is the doctrine of divine grace, God's graciousness. And let's begin by defining grace and seeing just how antithetical it is to the attitude either of entitlement or self-sufficiency. When we define grace in terms of God's grace, we define it this way. Grace, the grace of God, refers to his disposition to show favor and bring well-being to those who deserve the very opposite. Let me say that again. The grace of God refers to his disposition to show favor and bring well-being to those who deserve the opposite. Now, we've considered a, a similar perfection of God already that sounds similar to this, and it is the, the, the perfection of God's goodness. And we have to understand that grace could be defined as actually being a, an expression, a particular expression of God's goodness, because this is how we defined God's perfect goodness. When we say that God is good, we say that God has as a quality of his essence that which makes him profoundly generous to his creation. Because God is perfect, he is profoundly generous to all that he has made. Now, when we talk about grace in particular, it really is, in many regards, an expression of this goodness. What grace, how grace differs from God's goodness is in this way. The, the, the fundamental notion of God's grace is that it is displayed particularly and exclusively to those 
who are unworthy of it, who are contrary to what it represents. Grace, in a word, is undeserved. Grace is unmerited. Grace is unearned. It is favor. It is not merit. Whereas God's goodness is his disposition to all of creation, his grace is directed specifically toward man, to his image bearers, and for the specific purpose of salvation. When we study the scriptures and we look at those places where grace is described, where grace is mentioned, where the terms occur, they're always in salvific contexts. Now, certainly theologians have at times described God's goodness as God's common grace. He is commonly gracious to all of mankind, and they've used that terminology to describe God's goodness. He is He is commonly gracious. But it is probably better to recognize that the term grace is an exclusively salvific idea. And it's better to say instead that God is good. God's goodness is displayed through what he has done, what he does for all of creation. We read texts like Matthew 5 verse 45. God is good and that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, he causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. In, in Acts 14, 17, we read that God is good. He's left a testimony of his goodness to all mankind in giving them things to enjoy. But when we talk about grace, it has a specific salvific idea to it. God's grace is always personal in nature. It is always given to those who do not deserve it, and it always brings the recipient into a good standing with God. When we summarize the idea of grace, then we could put it this way, that grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. Now, we're familiar with gifts and, and we use gifts in many different ways, and it then instructs us here to be careful with how we understand the term gift. Sometimes we give gifts out of a sense of duty or even out of a sense of appreciation. So, for example, a student who is tutored by his teacher after class for several weeks or perhaps months can give his teacher a, a gift out of appreciation, But that's not what's going on with God's grace. Moreover, sometimes we give gifts in order to obtain favor. You think of what we did, those of us who are married, to try to win over our wives. We we gave gifts, and obviously we we had to. Uh, There was no other way to get their attention. And some of you guys who are not married need to learn you don't have what it takes. You're going to have to, you're going to have to grease the skids a little bit with some, some gifts, some well-timed appropriate gifts. We give gifts to obtain favor. Sometimes gifts are given freely, but 
They're given to those who are really deserving. So for example, us men on our anniversaries give our wives gifts. They are worthy of those gifts. They've lived with us for another year. And so we buy those gifts and they deserve every ounce of those gifts and even more. Sometimes we give gifts to those who are deserving. Sometimes we even give gifts to those who aren't deserving, and yet there's some kind of relationship that exists that makes the gift logical. So, for example, those of you who are fathers will give gifts to your disobedient children. Some of those children can sometimes be very disobedient, yet their birthday comes along and and you want to buy them a gift. But still... That desire to give the gift still has something there that connects it to a relationship, to, to a, a sense of, of obligation. But when we consider God's grace, there's no obligation. It's not done out of a sense of duty. It's not given out of appreciation to us. It's not given to obtain our favor It's not given because we deserve it. It's not even given because God already has some kind of relationship that obligates him to give us the gift. Now, God's gift, God's grace, God's favor is unlike any of these scenarios that we just described. In fact, it is so unique that we have difficulty understanding exactly what God's grace really is. It is so foreign to our experience. There is so much quid pro quo wrapped up in all of our relationships, so much obligation that fills us, so many, so many prior responsibilities and relationships that, that cloud our, our thinking that when it comes to God's grace, we simply fall short in appreciating its nature. Jerry Bridges described grace in these words. He said, grace is, quote, God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. B.B. Warfield defined grace this way. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Herman Bavink said, grace is the voluntary unrestrained and unmerited favor that God shows to sinners and that instead of the verdict of death brings them righteousness and life. But like I said, it's easy to misunderstand God's grace. And there are several misunderstandings, several ways in which the doctrine of divine grace has been twisted So we have to consider those for just a moment and answer the question, what does God's grace not mean? And first of all, we have to recognize this, that God is gracious does not imply that God must show grace to all men equally to maintain perfect graciousness. That's often a statement that that will be expressed or at least that will be assumed in discussions about God's grace, that if he's really gracious if he's truly and perfectly gracious, then he must show all men, all mankind, the same level 
of grace, and if he does not, then he somehow falls short in being perfectly gracious. But understand the problem with that. Now, the problem arises from our implicit understanding that, hey, I'm entitled to this. If God has riches, I'm entitled. But if God is obligated to give every sinner grace, then grace would no longer be a gift. It would be owed. It would be just. It would be justice. If every sinner was due the riches of God's grace equally, it would no longer be entitled grace. It would be entitled merit. It would be entitled payment, that which is due. And when God does not pour grace upon a sinner, it does not mean somehow automatically that that sinner is going to receive that which is not just, not fair, much to the contrary. When God withholds grace, when he does not give a gift, he does give what is perfectly fair. He gives what is perfectly just, what is perfectly righteous. In fact, we have to remember this, that to assume that God must be equally gracious to all men, it only minimizes the, the nature of the sinner's depravity. And it cheapens God's grace by reducing it to obligation. That when, when people will argue that God must show equal grace to all, that in this room, for example, he must be equally gracious to all, what that does is it shows, it displays a very errant understanding of your unworthiness and it makes grace an obligation, totally removing the nature of what grace really is. One theologian described it this way. John Feinberg writes this. He says, quote, those who don't receive a particular expression of grace have no right to be angry at God for passing them by. Their anger shows that they are expecting God to do something he is never obligated himself to do. For to do it would be grace, and grace is never owed. So even though it is human nature to complain and be angry at God when others receive a blessing that we do not receive, such attitudes are totally inappropriate. End quote. Another misunderstanding of, of grace is to think that because there appears in our experience a tension between justice and grace, that the same must be true about God. So we struggle with these things due to our biases, due to our limited knowledge, due to all of our imperfections and failures. We struggle with reconciling justice and grace. And so for us, we think that to be gracious means we have to cease being just, and to be just, we cannot be gracious at the same time. And then we take that experience and we project it onto God and think that somehow when God is either being just or gracious, that he experiences some kind of inner turmoil. Well, because God is perfect, there is never 
at all any such turmoil. There's never a time when he is at odds within himself as if to say he's got some kind of split personality or schizophrenia. That is not who God is. In his perfect existence, he is always all of himself. He is not divided into all these feelings here and there, all these different components that can be at odds. He is one. He is perfectly just and perfectly gracious at the same time. There is no time when, when he extends grace that he ceases to be just, and no time when he extends justice and ceases to be the God of grace he is proclaimed to be. He never sacrifices any of his perfections in order to express others. Now, from where do we get this teaching on divine grace? Let's look at the biblical witness now to God's grace, biblical testimony to God's grace. First of all, we turn to what is, what is that one text which really stands at the head of the list of all testimonies to the grace of God. It comes in that context where, where Moses asks to behold the glory of God And God hides him in the cleft of the rock and then he appears to to Moses in this mitigated form, letting Moses see but a, a little bit of his glory and the Lord himself describes himself to Moses with these words. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." Now, what's interesting in this text is that you see juxtaposed both God's grace and his justice, his graciousness and his righteousness. And Yahweh himself makes this declaration. And these two qualities, these two perfections are displayed back to back, separated in our translations by a a mere semicolon. There is no need For Yahweh to try to reconcile these things, they are perfectly reconciled in God, both his grace and his righteousness. In fact, this text is the most repeated text in the scriptures. We find it, for example, cited in Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 17, uh, 9, 17, Psalm 86, verse 15, on and on and on. And we see it echoed many other places throughout Scripture as well. This is this high point, this Everest, in the proclamation of God's grace. Moving to the New Testament, you find other texts like John 1.14, where you see it describing the Son, the incarnate Son. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
In 1 Peter 5 verse 10, another reference generally to God being full of grace or being the God of grace, Peter says this to the suffering saints spread across the the regions of modern-day Turkey. He said to them, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace. But we can take the testimony to God's grace that we find replete in the scriptures and put it into more specific categories. So first of all, as we look at the biblical testimony and understand grace better through that, we see first of all that God's grace is described as always being undeserved by its recipients. That is the clear testimony over and over in both Old and New Testaments that when God shows his grace, it is undeserved. Even just a few texts here. The Apostle Paul is the one who really brings this out. For example, in Romans 4, verses 4 to 8. Now notice how Paul establishes his logic between grace and, 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 and the gift and that which is wage or that which is earned. He says this, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man who credits, who God credits righteousness apart from works. And then quoting from Psalm 32 verse 1, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. But notice verse 4, very clear in Paul's logic. To the one who works, what you receive in response is a wage. You receive a wage. It is not favor. It is what is due. But to the one who has nothing to show, To the one who does not work, what he receives is the favor. Romans 6 verse 23, notice again the concept of wages. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here again, wages and gift juxtaposed, they are opposite from one another. And the one who receives the gift He receives it freely. He does not earn it. Romans 11 verse 6. For if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. And so as we understand a little bit better what the scriptures teach about grace and what God extends to us in grace, we understand that grace is never earned. The moment that 
you think that what you receive from God is somehow earned, you cannot call it his grace. What is received as grace is always and completely and totally unearned. Secondly, the scriptures teach us through their witness to God's grace that God's grace is always sovereign in its expression. Now this, if you really think about it, it seems common sense. It seems natural that if, that if grace is really a gift that has no strings attached, that is not in any way warranted or merited, then of course the giver always has the freedom to choose. And yet, at the same time, a lot of people have a problem with the concept of sovereign grace. And if you have a problem with the concept of sovereign grace, it is that you don't understand either the word sovereign or the word grace. And most likely, it's that you do not understand the word grace. As we look at the scriptures, God's grace is always sovereign in its expression. He gives grace to whom he pleases, period. Exodus 33, verse 19, going back to Mount Sinai. Just a few verses before that great declaration of chapter 34, here God says this, I myself will make all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then notice this statement, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion compassion. Even in the Old Testament at this, at this Everest of, of, of chapters in Scripture, this, this scene that takes place on Mount Sinai, you have God already declaring that his grace is sovereign in its expression. It is not somehow received because God's arm is twisted behind his back, that there is something outside of himself that is obligating him to do this. No, he is obligated only by his own good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 to 8, we read this, he predestined us, God did, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now central to that idea is that phrase, according to the kind intention of his will. Not according to the worthiness of the recipient, but purely according to his good pleasure. Second Timothy 1 verse 9, Paul says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but how? According to what? According to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's decision to pour grace upon us is purely 
according to his kind intention. And it must cause us, as we will see in a few minutes, it must cause us to look upon this world, to look upon the sinners of this world, not with condescension and arrogance, but it must leave us asking the question, why me? Why have I been shown this grace? Purely according to the intention of God's will, not according to my merit. J.I. Packer said this, God does not owe it to anyone to stop justice from taking its course. He is not obliged to pity and pardon. If he does so, it is an act done, as we say, of his own free will, and no one forces his hand. Another writer, Maurice Roberts, puts it this way. And this is important to consider because sometimes when we talk about God's sovereign will, the response is, well, doesn't God then abuse the will of the recipient because he forces his riches of goodness upon him? Now, that's a ludicrous idea to start off with, but it also misunderstands that perfect functioning, that perfect influence of God's Grace, and Maurice Roberts captures this well. He says this, quote, Grace is God's infinite power working gently in order to bring us to himself. We do not mean by gently that it is not equally infinite with his other exercises of power, such as the creation of the world. But we draw attention to the fact that the effect upon the recipient is always benign or gentle and and welcome. God saves no man to his harm, and God saves none against his will. God makes the sinner willing. It is a secret exercise of omnipotence on the hidden man of the heart, coaxing and alluring him to salvation and glory by Christ. It is always effectual. But it is never brute strength. A third category of testimony that Scripture gives us on the, on, on the perfection of God's grace is this. God's grace is centered in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the prophets describing this grace looked forward to that first advent of Christ. And then in the New Testament, the New Testament writers look back on that historical moment of that first advent of Christ, and they see in it all of God's grace. In fact, some have stated in a very nifty way that you can define grace according to this This acronym, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that certainly is the testimony of Scripture. We saw John 1.14 already, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full, full of grace. That's Christ. In John 1, 16 to 17, we read this, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized 
through Jesus Christ. Acts 15 verse 11, one of the great statements coming from the mouth of the apostle Peter as he testifies at the Jerusalem council as to the salvation of the Gentiles, salvation that he himself had observed. And, and, and Peter makes this great statement. He says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, are also. We are saved through the grace, and that grace reaches its apex in the person of the Lord Jesus. Romans 5, 15, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression, by that transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. We see grace centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Without him, you do not have this salvific grace. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 11, Peter describes the the, the prophets of old who, as they wrote, recognized that they were prophesying. They understood that they were prophesying about this coming one full of grace, wishing to know and experience that time when he would come. But this is what Peter says. He says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Fourth, we see Scripture testify that God's grace is necessary for salvation. There can be no salvation apart from it. We've read many of these verses already, but it bears mention that, that this is crucial in the understanding of God's grace. And, and what this testimony results in is that great statement, that great pillar that was raised during the Reformation, the pillar of sola gratia, by grace alone. Acts 14, Acts 20, and so on. In the book of Acts, we see that, that the gospel... The message of salvation is called the word of his grace, the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 11.23, when Barnabas is sent by the church, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, up to the Gentile church in Syrian Antioch, he arrives. And when he arrives and sees all of these former pagans worshiping Jesus Christ, his response is this. He witnesses the grace of God. The salvation of those pagans is synonymous with the grace of God. Acts 15 verse 11, we read that already. Peter says the Jews are saved in the same way as those Gentiles. They are saved by grace. There is no distinction It never has been that the Jews were saved by their works and that everyone else, all the pagans, were saved by grace. No, it has always been by grace. Romans 3.24, 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul describes the believer. We see it in Romans 5.17. We read that already. Romans 5.20-21. to The law came so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have that all-familiar verse that is so precious to us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, that grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go on and on, Ephesians 2, all of the chapter from one verse, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to the end of verse 9. We, we see it over and over again in Scripture. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace and only by grace. I like how this is expressed by Augustus' top lady in that very familiar hymn, Rock of Ages. Now, he doesn't use the term grace here, but we see it in the concepts that Augustus' top lady expresses here. Follow the words in stanzas two and three. He writes this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Stanza three, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. But that grace is needed not only for our entrance into salvation. Sometimes we can think that, well, the Bible testifies that we are saved by grace, but then as we walk along the path of the Christian life, there's something more to it. We must contribute to it. We must earn and protect and preserve ourselves. Well, scriptures are clear there too. That grace is just as much needed for the everyday Christian life as it was to get us into that life in the first place. Notice Romans 5 verses 1 to 2. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. Salvation is just the introduction into grace into this grace in which we stand. We we are just as much in need of grace today as we were on the first moment of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul expresses this as he describes his own apostolic ministry. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace did not did not prove vain. I have labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. As Paul summarized his apostolic ministry and all the achievements that he had been privileged to do, 
He still looks at all of that and doesn't say, well, this is now my merit. This is now my ability. This is now my effort. No, he says, this is the grace of God working within me. James chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, James gives instruction to those believers as to, to how to live the Christian life. And, and, and he says this, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God, therefore. That in the Christian life, as we walk the path of the redeemed, that grace remains essential, critical, foundational to everything. We must maintain that humility that recognizes that I am not worthy of this life. I have not been made worthy somehow inherently, It's not that God has simply given me the energy, now I've used it and become righteous. No, our lives as believers, as we walk the path of the redeemed, is still all by grace. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely. Now notice this, on the grace to be revealed. So not only is grace something that that brings us into salvation. Not only is grace something in which we now stand, but grace is also that which is coming for us. Grace is also that which will be defined by our glorification. That too is all of grace. So we, as we look at the entirety of the Christian life, must recognize from beginning to end, it is all of grace. None of it is ever merited. None of it is is ever earned. All the riches, all the blessings that we experience in this life, all those precious moments of fellowship with Christ, of doing his ministry, of enjoying his goodness, all of those things as our eyes have been opened, as we confess sin and and, and experience the, the mortification of sin and the vivification of righteousness, as we gather together with the saints and experience all the blessings that flow from that, all of these things, you go down the list, one after the other after the other, everything is all unmerited. We never start earning it. It's always of grace. There's another wonderful hymn. The topic of grace has obviously inspired many such hymns, but one is by the English, the 18th century English nonconformist pastor Philip Doddridge. It's called Grace, Tis a Charming Sound. It goes like this, Grace first contrived the way to save rebellious man, and all the steps that grace display which drew the wondrous plan. Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. T'was grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took. Grace taught my wandering feet to tread the heavenly road and new supplies each hour I meet while pressing on to God. Grace taught my soul to pray and made mine eyes o'erflow. T'was grace which kept me to this day and will not let me go. Grace all the works shall crown through everlasting days. It lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. O let thy grace 
inspire my soul with strength divine. May all my powers to thee aspire and all my days be thine. Now, as we bring this to a close and consider the response to God's grace, we can ask the question, what, what grace demands from us? And the answer to this question is nothing. It's the beauty of God's grace. There are no demands in God's grace. But of course, there are appropriate responses to God's grace, not because we receive it and then try to do something after the fact to merit it. No, it comes without any quid pro quo. What can we do in response to grace? Well, first of all, we must always remember we were saved by grace. That seems like such a simple truth, and yet how very important is it that we cultivate a life which constantly reflects, daily reflects on this truth. I was saved by grace. John Bunyan, in that classic work, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, explains it in such a wonderfully pastoral way when he says this. He says, quote, it is profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginnings of grace with their souls. Oh, the remembrance of my great sins, of my great temptations, and of my great fear of perishing forever. They bring afresh into my mind the remembrance of my great help, my great supports from heaven, and the great grace that God extended to such a wretch as I. If you are growing in your understanding of God, it will translate into this increase in in daily appreciation for the grace by which you have been saved. And it is so very good for us to reflect upon that continually, not to to, to experience all those past sins all over again, but to just call them in, into mind briefly for a split second so as to remind us what we once were and then that, that that brief recollection of the hideousness of those sins would serve as the backdrop for this wonderful diamond of God's grace. And that diamond would automatically attract all of our attention. And that changes life. It changes life. You can be in the hardest of circumstances at work or at home and and you dwell upon this and it changes things. All of a sudden, all the, 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 the grumbling and the complaining over such trivial things just melts away. I was a sinner saved by grace. And it helps us also to relate to the world around us. John Newton, in a letter that he wrote called A Word in Season, reminds us of the appropriate attitude we are to have to those around us when we do see the the wretched sinners, the pagans out there displaying their, their arrogance. And he says this, we when we look at the ungodly, we are not to hate them, but to pity them, to mourn over them, and to pray for them. Nor have we any right to boast over them, for by nature and of ourselves, we are no better than they. 
And this is so very important for us in this day. Certainly, we are to call out sin. We are to stand, we're to stand courageously against the, the evil forces that seek to influence our families and, and, and to us personally. Indeed. But we must always remember we ourselves were saved by grace. And but for that grace, there go we. When you see the, the horrendous demonstrations of these hideous, ugly, abominable drag shows to children. On the one hand, we are to, we are to be indignant. We are to call it sin. We are to call it an abomination in the eyes of God. And yet, in the very same breath, there should be this remembrance that if God had not saved me, I would be in that classroom. That would be me. And that leads us to magnify this Amazing grace of God. A second response is this. Acknowledge that you need grace as as much today as ever. You need it today too. And that's okay. In fact, that's necessary. You can't do it on your own. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And and we remember that text in 2 Corinthians where, where Paul recounts this episode in his life where he has this this thorn, and we don't know exactly what it was. Probably some false teacher was causing all kinds of problems for Paul. Distinct discomfort. And and, and he records this for us. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of the great privileges given to Paul as an apostle, he says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Some of you may be wondering why the power in you is low. You may be wondering why there is, why there is such a struggle in, in ministry or in discipleship or in resisting temptation. And the reality of it is, is, is because you're trying to do it all on your own. You think that now you you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Now it's in your hands. Now it's for you to live it out. And what you need is that grace of God that is sufficient for you to, to, in your Christian life, even as a Christian for three decades or four decades or five decades, to remember you are weak. You are weak. And when we remember that in and of ourselves we are still weak, Then we realize our need for the grace of God, and then we see it in display. Charles Spurgeon said this about the need for ongoing grace. He said, when we put our foot upon the threshold of glory and pass through the gates of pearl to the golden pavement of the heavenly city, the last step will be as much taken through the grace of God as was the first step when we turned unto our great Father in our rags and misery. Left by the grace of God for a single moment, 
we would perish. We are dependent as much upon grace for spiritual life as we are upon the air we breathe for this natural life. Thirdly, what grace requires from us as a response is to magnify the grace of God. Speak much of it. Speak much of it. Let this cultivate and engender in you this this ever-increasing adoration and love for God that as every day passes, you can speak of yourself in, in worse and worse terms and Him in more and more glorious terms. J.I. Packer said, once a person is convinced that his state and need as described, the New Testament gospel of grace cannot but sweep him off his feet in wonder and in joy. And that, after all, is why God has shown his grace. It's to put it all on display. Ephesians 1, 5 to 6, he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's done this to to, to make the riches of this grace known. And and by relishing this grace, understand that, that the more we think of it, the more we live by it, the more we meditate upon it. Some will say, well, the more you think of that, the more prone you will be to stay in your sin. You'll just say grace, grace, grace all the time. And that's not true. The more you meditate on the grace of God, the deeper you understand it, the more it makes you willing to leave the filth of that sin. When you understand God's grace for what it is, who wants to go to the pig pen? Number four, Extend grace toward others. Finally, we're left with this reminder that grace is also a communicable activity. It's something that God has created us to show as well. If we truly understand the nature and extent of the grace poured out upon us, we will be quick to shower it upon others. Those who are miserly don't understand grace. Those who withhold forgiveness, those who speak harshly, brutally, don't understand grace. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, let your speech always be seasoned with what? Grace. The way that we interact with one another, the way that we relate, the way that we fellowship with one another, it should be evident by our very words that we have been impacted by grace. We've been overwhelmed by it. And so how can a harsh word come from our mouths? Or of course, you have that great text, that parable of Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35 about forgiveness. When Peter asked the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You know, seven was that sign of completion. So not just once or twice, but he can sin the same sin against me seven times. This already was a stretch for Peter to say seven times. And then you have the response of Jesus saying up to seven times? No, up to 70 times seven. And he goes on to tell that parable in that context, 
of that prisoner who had been released, whose debt of 10,000 talents, 150,000 years of labor, which he owed, was erased. And that man who has such a debt erased by the grace of that master goes and then holds a man and chokes a man who owes him a hundred days worth of wages. And of course, that is understandably an atrocity, and yet it happens all the time when we who have received innumerable, immeasurable expressions of grace from our God turn around and are miserly with our forgiveness. If we understand God's grace, we will be a forgiving people. Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is amazing grace that has saved us. And there's nothing that we could ever do to repay one iota of that grace. In fact, the whole purpose for grace is to convince us that there is no need for repayment at all. And in a world filled with entitlement or self-sufficiency, that is very hard to believe. And yet it testifies to your great perfection. May we, more than ever, be drawn to this great perfection in you. May it attract our deepest adoration, our most profound praise. May it transform us and leave us not like we once were. And may we reflect that grace to others for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.